0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Matt Townsend is here with us. Uh, we love talking to him about all things retail. You know, just one of the guys we miss. First of all, how are mm-hmm. you, man?
2: I'm good. Uh, I've been hanging out in Brooklyn for three months. Uh, so, How's that going? <laughs> uh, it's going okay. Uh, you know, raining right now, so yeah. um, a weather update for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: we get it. We totally get it. Um, speaking of rain and kind of being kind of Cloud gray, weather. man, the retail industry. I feel like every every day it's something new. And you know, here's an iconic company tailored to the president's Brooks Brothers done bankruptcy.
2: Yeah, bankruptcy. Um, yeah, this follows several other big names, JC Penney um, being one of them. You know, J- Brooks Brothers. You know, historic brand. um, Anybody sort of in the business world probably knows the name. Uh, But you know, they were struggling before COVID, um, and with what we've seen with a lot of uh, retailers, is that COVID really accelerated some of their faults and sort of if they were headed down a a, a bad path, this really accelerated um, them even further into that into that bad path. And um, but this isn't to say that Brooks Brothers is going away. I mean, they, they did go into bankruptcy. With a loan to help them get through bankruptcy, you know, they have a plan to, you know, shift more to casual wear to kind of, they still believe the brand has a lot of value in it. Um, and But what will likely happen is they'll clean up their balance sheet and hopefully find a buyer that will come in and buy the, buy the company and the brand and take it from there. That, that's the goal right now.
1: Yeah, and so what happened with this specific name, Matt? I mean, Brooks Brothers, I have to say, I mean, I grew up, this is going to be a shocker to you, uh, Carol Masser, <laughs> but uh, I grew up a little preppy. In fact, I believe, my mother can keep me honest on this, I believe, quick flex, I was in a Brooks Brothers fashion show when I was about six years old in Boston, oh, Massachusetts. Wow. Um, Debbie, so, if you're listening, yeah, I should, would like I, a I'll picture. A text. I want, text, I want uh, proof, shortly. and
0: I just want the picture to tweet out. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so, but I mean, this is, this is an, as Carol said, a, you know, tailored to the presidents. I mean, this is a really well-known name that had been doing well for a long time until it wasn't.
2: Yeah. It, it had gone through a couple of different owners. It's always been a private company. Um, and you know, the current owner is, uh, Italian, uh, who comes from a, a sort of fashion family. And, um. You know, he, he had realized there was an issue, Try to make the brand uh, appeal more to younger people, younger men, be more fresh and vibrant, go after some of the sportswear category. But at the end of the day, the big problem is men just aren't wearing as many suits as they used to, um, even in sort of once formal settings. Um, and, and, they, and on top of that, lots of new competitors right. um, coming up with you know, custom suits for a couple hundred bucks. Um, you know, which yeah. is much less than you get a uh, Brooks Brothers suit for. So it's a combination it's of just yeah, g- g- n- more nimble competition coming in with lower prices and good quality. Right. And just the category itself is just in decline.
0: Well, let's bring in, courtesy of Matt, he brought along a friend, Matt Rubel. He's former CEO and chairman of Collective Brands, former chairman, president, and CEO of Colhan, uh also CEO of Pepe Jeans, um, someone who understands the retail world like Matt um, just so well. Matt, nice to have you here with us. You know, we kicked off our conversation talking a little bit with Matt just to give us the lowdown on what happened with Brooks Brothers, but it does feel like we said at the top that every day, you know, there's a new retailer. That's filing for bankruptcy. Um, we know we're overstored. How do you see it? Where does the retail world go? And what does Brooks Brothers, you know, closing or bankruptcy, I should say, you know, tell us?
3: Um, well, first of all, hi, great to, hi. Great to be with you. Um, and uh, uh, listen, you've got to kind of. There are about a million. There are a little over a million stores in the United States today. And they sell anything from need-based products, you know, like Walmart and things like that, you know, to aspirational products um, or trend-related consumer products like apparel. And, and, and it is the general consensus that we will lose between 150 and 200,000 of those stores over the next 12 to 18 months. And that was a, um, a momentum and a movement that was in place because of, you know, the ability to have brands come to you via your phone and via your computer, via your iPad, et cetera. Um, that was accelerated during COVID, as well as the fact that when your doors are shut, you have no cash flow and you have no customers. And so they have to do it. So uh, let's bring it down to the trend related consumer products versus supermarkets and, and, you know, things like that. Um, I, I would just say the way customers are engaging is different. And, and uh, Brooks Brothers ended up with, you know, Claudio's a great, um, a great longtime business friend and a wonderful, wonderful guy. But what happened here is that you have a traditional brand in a slow-moving category, i.e. men's, that did not evolve as quickly with the change in taste. And in conjunction with that, when the door shut. And also everybody goes and starts to be even more casual. The movement toward work at home, the movement toward different consumer behaviors, how people will be, will just chop their marketplace um, by a tremendous amount. And they can't support the overheads that are in place. That doesn't mean it's not a great brand. That doesn't mean it can't sell product going forward. Um, It can, but just not in the structure. And that's why you see the Chapter 11 uh, that came across.
2: Yeah, Matt, you've run brands, you've analyzed brands, um, you've talked to investors about brands. Given what you know about Brooks Brothers, would you be a buyer of the Brooks Brothers brand or company at this point, um, given that they're going to be you know, going through a bidding process? And if so, what would you do with the brand?
3: Um, the answer is yeah. Uh, I think that the brand, again, it's all a matter of you know, uh, you know, at what price. But the uh, the brand has tremendous awareness. Um, it stands for something very classic uh, with a twist, uh, in and uh, a long, long heritage, and it has a great international appeal. So, um, what I would do is, you know, kind of bring it back to its roots. Uh, I would upgrade its um, product content to really move to a higher level. I would. Um, Refocus it. I would have, uh, almost very, very few stores. I would have international stores as well as, um, the others. And then I would kind of create an engaging, you know, website that deals with, um, a, a reinterpretation of how that consumer, the conceptual consumer that, you know, 30 years ago was relevant, how that mm-hmm. consumer dresses today and how you bring, uh, him. To life in his lifestyle um, through great tailoring and through great high-quality product delivered vertically, therefore being able to do it at better better value. So you know that's what I would do, but uh, it's um, more likely going to get bought by a licensing company or a brand you know company that's going to go out and chop it up into different categories and and it'll get um, masked out. So that's that's my perspective
2: um, just follow up about the broader retail landscape. Um, you mentioned, you know, the expectations for all the store closings, given what is happening with the virus now and that, you know, many States are going back into shutting down parts of the economy. Um, do you think there's room for that? Um, I think you said something like 200,000 stores to be, in a, a, be even bigger that this could be even a larger fallout for the industry. Than previously
3: it really depends on the real estate um, mm. uh, marketplace and how fungible that they are, meaning how flexible they'll be with working, and then ultimately how the banks will be with the real estate um, groups as well. You know, because it, the current rent structure would not allow um, stores to, on the diminished demand that one is going to see in certain categories, um, work. That being said, there's health and wellness concepts. There's other concepts that are, you know, out there that are doing fine. Um, But, you know, restaurants, there's about 680,000 restaurant locations uh, around the United States. You know, uh, fast casual and, you know, quick QSR is going to be fine. But, you know, casual and fine dining, uh, they're in trouble. And they've got some real issues. And so you're going to see, you know, 30% of those. Um, go away. And a lot of the creativity that's come to bear here, you know, you live in Brooklyn, so you get to see all the great creativity here in Portland, Maine. (laughs) We have some great, great restaurants too. They're going to go out of business. And it's it's just a shame that that creativity that's been layered into this marketplace is going to go away.
0: Yeah, we're going to check in with Danielle Ballou a little bit later on, too, to just talk about, because he's slowly reopening. But, you know, everybody's learning to pivot. Um, Matt, we've just got about 45, 50 seconds left here. You know, who wins ultimately in this, and what's the biggest consumer trend that comes out of the virus, just quickly?
3: Who who wins? Uh, Quite honestly, it's going to be barbells. It's the people Mm -hmm. with capital who can really go out and, you know, kind of uh, work their way through this. And then it's going to be uh, the creative new businesses um, that are really close to their consumers and they're fast. So they have to be, you know, what's the best supply chain? It's a fast one. What's the, you know, best way to deal with your customer as closely as you possibly can to make it a personalized experience? You know, the the Chanel group uh, at the luxury end, people would say, oh, my God, they're going to have a hard time. Well, they're developing technologies that are helping. Um, There are all sorts of, Right. companies that are developing unique technologies. So right. people who
1: can pivot um, and be fast, and then those who have capital and scale.
0: Makes sense. All right.
1: Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. What a great conversation, Delighted. Matt Bell, chairman of the executive board at Mid Ocean Partners, a long history in the retail business, which he just proved with some great uh, insights. And our own Matt Townsend, editor for Bloomberg, joining us from Brooklyn. The two Mats really delivering here.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So I'm going to go back to a story, Jason. I mentioned it before because I do want to get um, Jamie Metzl's thoughts on this. It was a Bloomberg News story. It was covered by Nick Wadhams We talked about it yesterday. It's covering how the U.S.'s inability to handle the pandemic is basically hurting its economic might. And ultimately, as a result of that, it's geopolitical influence. At the same time, we know President Trump, there's a lot of stuff going on between the U.S. and China. They are looking to ban uh, TikTok in the U.S. as one way to retaliate against China over its handling of the virus. Meantime, China is moving full steam ahead. So, once again, we want some insight on what's going on between the U.S. and China and where China is headed. Back with us is Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at Atlantic Council, Technology Futurist. He's former Director on the U.S. National Security Council at the State Department and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he wrote, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Humanity. we've talked about him about so many big macro issues (laughs) and uh, Jamie's back with us on the phone in New York how are you
4: I'm you know what I always say is I am good but this is a sure crazy world so (laughs) what can you do
0: well so where do we start when it comes to U.S. and China because I do feel like there's a ton of stories already on the Bloomberg um, today but we've certainly seen the momentum pick up over the last couple of weeks in the last month or so so what are you watching Jamie
4: well, certainly U.S.-China relations are bad and they are getting worse. And after so many decades of coupling, uh, we're seeing a pretty aggressive and rapid decoupling. And the really hard part uh, is that while China is is really getting its act together, um, even though, as you know, uh, Carol and Jason, I have a huge criticism of China and, mm-hmm. and the origins of the pandemic in terms of Bonding. They've done a pretty great job, and their economy is is starting to come back. And the United States, with our spectacular failure um, to respond to the, the pandemic, this is a country that, if, if the pandemic wasn't enough, um, having a, a leader who's pitting us against each other is just adding fuel to that, uh, to that fire. And so we all live in this world created by our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who fought and won two world wars, won the Cold War, and now we're America is kind of falling apart, and and the it's not just the future of America that's at stake, but the future of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean we're losing this war at at the moment, uh, Jamie. Isn't that fair to say? I think we are, and and and
4: we use the word war. It's a very strong yep. term, but there's a, there's a competition and. Uh, we have all grown up in a world where the United States in many ways set the terms of that competition, whether it's free trade, open markets, free speech, and the United States was always imperfect. Um, but now the, the, the world is, is America is, is not playing the traditional role that it's played. We feel just things are falling apart. And China is moving very aggressively to make the world look and feel a bit more like China. That's what we're seeing now in, in Hong Kong. We're seeing now with the, um, with the Chinese national security laws applying in Hong Kong, apply to people all around the world, um, at, at least according to, to Chinese law. So that, that's what's at stake is, what does the world look like that we want to live in? And the United States is losing influence by the day.
0: Well, and, you know, we're Bloomberg, right? And we care about how things impact us, certainly on a social level, but on an economic level, on a business level. What does this mean for U.S. businesses who have been, since I began my career in business news, it was all about tapping into the Chinese market and their billion-plus at that time population and consumer base. So what does it mean for American businesses?
4: Well, American businesses are going to have to really think hard about what's their right relationship with China. And that doesn't mean no relationship. It just means um, that a lot of the old assumptions um, will no longer be true. And, and certainly it will be very difficult for um, American companies to operate in China if they do anything other than what the Chinese government wants. And that's true for small companies, but even for big companies like Apple. Um, and it's certainly the case uh, that uh, that. American companies will have less legal protection uh, in uh, in China because the United States government just has less and less leverage. And I think that over time, um, it's not just decoupling between the United States and China, but the world is going to more evolve into two broad competitive ecosystems, the greater U.S. competitive ecosystem and the greater China competitive ecosystem. And that doesn't mean that Everyone will have to be, the other countries and communities will have to be all in with one or the other. Right. But kind of like in the Cold War, you're going to, it's going to be a really important strategic decision that every company and every country makes is where do you fit in
3: relation to those two poles?
0: Well, and speaking of decisions, I mean, Jason Wright, we came on air and one of the headlines that crossed was Google scrapping its cloud initiative in China and specifically in part to concerns over geopolitical tensions and the pandemic, according to those in the know. So, you know, Jamie, we're already seeing companies make decisions about kind of where they want to play.
4: It's true. Um, And yet companies like, let's uh, go on with this Google example, Mm -hmm. there are now some really strong Chinese competitors. So in the early days, it was, well, China is ripping off source code. And that's this whole Huawei. I mean, there's a lot of Cisco that's in Huawei, which is just stolen code. Um, Mm -hmm. But now there are these national champion Chinese companies that have huge advantages Um, Because they are backed, they're essentially, uh, in many ways, arms of the state, backed by massive um, resources, um, by a captive uh, consumer base. And the next step of this global China, which is what the Chinese leadership wants, is is for China to be the leading country in the world by 2049. And that doesn't mean it's leading like they have bigger companies. It means that we're all, in many ways, living in China's world like for the last 75 years most everyone has lived in
1: america's world and if we yeah. don't want that we better get our act together here at home uh jamie we're so happy to have you here in part because so much has happened since the last time we talked to you yeah. uh and it wasn't that long ago uh to be honest uh i i want to talk to you about sort of social protest, uh injustice we're seeing it globally we're obviously seeing it uh in in an amazing way here domestically. But we also can't forget what we've seen go on in Hong Kong. Talk about Hong Kong first and then maybe bring it back to the United States.
4: Yeah. So what we're seeing in Hong Kong is connected to the conversation that we had in the last block, uh, in the sense that China has its view of the world. It has has its sense of um, how everybody should be and behave and the level of control that China should have. The United States has a very, very different view. And that's why for so many decades, the United States and the role of the United States has countered in many ways the ambitions of countries like China, Soviet Union and others. With the United States now on its knees, um, there's a lot of maneuverability for other countries like China and Russia that have designs that are different from ours. So China, as you, Jason and Carol, know, they they signed of their own accord the basic law in 1997. And it afforded the people of Hong Kong a certain this one country, two systems model with basic rights uh, for 50 years and, until um, 2047. And this national security law just strips it away. And in, in a different time, the United States would have played a very active role. And the United Kingdom saying, well, hey, wait a second. There's an international agreement that's been registered with the U.N. You signed it. This is a clear, a, a clear violation of that. Um, but now... Um, but in this environment, it's kind of anything goes. And that's why China's moving so aggressively. And the people of Hong Kong don't really have a place to appeal to. Um, right. And that's that's what's so tragic. I mean, their basic rights are being stripped and there's nothing they can do. And that's how that's how people have always felt within oppressive societies. But now it, 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 that, that space is uh, is growing. And and that's the issue, is that, is that in our world, there are these structures, there are the superstructures of laws and, and sovereign states, and then there's, there are cultures. Um, and it wasn't coincidental that in the 1930s, we had more and more fascist states because that was a trend. And then in the 1990s, we had more democratic states because that was a trend. And now we're seeing a return to a much more dangerous world um, and it wasn't that the old world was so great. There were all kinds of cracks and breaks and crevices and shortcomings in, in the old world. But if you had a problem with what was before, you're really going to have a problem, in my view, with what's what's coming.
0: So is it? it's not just the U.S. withdrawing, though. Like you said, who's going to keep yeah. China in check, right, Jamie? It's not just the U.S. kind of withdrawing. It's other countries as well.
4: You know, absolutely, but the, at least since 1945 and even before that, the United States has had a special role mm-hmm. as kind of the, the, the rallier-in-chief, that we had all these allies and partners and friends. The United States played the leading role in creating the United Nations, supporting the concepts of human rights and, and international law. And then the other countries um, played in many ways, and they played a very critical role, but the United States was the leader. And now with the United States pulling back, and with China very aggressively stepping up, there's this period of, of disarray um, where there's not a systemic response. There's not a systemic response here in the United States where we have such deep um, problems. And there's also not a systemic rep- uh, response to these big issues globally. And it's, it's not just Hong Kong. It's, we have 3 billion people on Earth who are living in extreme poverty. And now under covid um, those people are going to be in much at much greater threat. Who is leading the charge to help those people? And and traditionally, the United States would rally everybody else. And now we're we're in disarray, and it, it's unclear whether we will or, or we can or, or will do that.
0: I have so many questions, Jamie, as I always do. When you come on, <laughs> mm-hmm. two two things you said. You said the U.S. is on its knees, and I just wish you could, if you would, just give a little bit more on that. And I also wonder you know, what's changed? Was this China's mission all along and shame on the rest of the world and not acknowledging it? Or was it that China now is more established? As you said, they've got global competitors and global companies that they don't necessarily have to rely so much on the rest of the world.
4: Pick one. So China, its mission was always, I mean, it didn't ever want to play a secondary role, uh, yeah. even in this U.S.-led world. And that was always China's ambition, Um, After the 2000, the old thing used to be um, to kind of lay low and wait for your moment. And then there was the uh, 2008-2009 financial crisis. China became very aggressive. The U.S. got its act together, and it turned out that that was a big mistake. But this is the time. I think China recognizes that if they want to change the superstructure of the world, this is the moment uh, to do it. So that's changed. And the United States, um, we are now doing to ourselves what our worst enemies have tried and failed to do to us for decades. And that's yeah. the tragedy.
1: Mm. It really is amazing uh, everything and how it has continued to, in many ways, just spiral downward. And I know you are a, a hopeful and optimistic guy, yes. uh, Jamie, but uh, these, are, these are difficult times. But we really appreciate your insights, your candor. Uh, it's Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, former National Security Council official, mm-hmm. um, author of "Hacking Darwin," which is a terrific book, incredibly timely. Yeah. Uh, really, I have to say, one of the smartest guys that that we know.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, he closed his restaurants in New York City um, before the official COVID-19 mandates from the state. That was uh, just a few months ago. And now on the other side of the virus, he's finding his way back uh, like the rest of us. Uh, we were welcoming back chef and restaurant tour uh, Danielle Blue joining us on the phone from his restaurant in New York City. Danielle, it is so nice to have you back here uh, on Bloomberg. This is a big day for you guys. Tell me, tell us how it's going.
5: Thank you, Carol, and thank you, Jason, for having me on the show. And, uh, well, it's a a big day. Every day is a big day because I think every day we try to really bring a little bit more improvement and also a little bit more hope uh, to our businesses. And uh, today we are putting a sidewalk cafe at Restaurant Daniel, which uh, Restaurant Daniel is 28 years old, 27 when he was on 76th Street, he used to have a sidewalk cafe. When I moved it to 65th, I never really put a sidewalk cafe because we had enough room inside. And and uh, tonight we are doing, um, because I've started a business of uh, delivery and to-go, Daniel Bully Kitchen. So we are serving the menu of Daniel Bully Kitchen on the terrace of Daniel. So more casual and uh, more approachable, but fun and, 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 and really... Uh, it's an opportunity because I think we have a beautiful uh, facade. We have a beautiful space.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And that's the only place we can really serve our guests. And we felt that it would be good to bring more staff and to bring, right. new, uh, to bring guests back.
1: I have to uh, imagine, Danielle, that your clientele, many of whom are our listeners, uh, so well known across uh, Manhattan and and the world, they must have been clamoring for this, right? I mean, have you been getting a lot of calls of people saying, I I want to come back in some form or fashion? (laughs)
0: Come cook for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. So we do that. We have the
5: come cook for me by, by sending them meal home, of course, and we also do package for uh, destination, uh, the Hamptons or other places, people drive miles from the Stry State to come and pick up a box with all kinds of meals prepared for them to take home. But, I mean, having them at the restaurant and being able to, again, welcome, serve them, pamper them, and offer them something we feel, uh, it, it makes us very happy, and I think it will make them very happy, our guests, yes.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, Danielle, like we have been talking to a lot of folks, especially within your industry, that you've got to figure out how to pivot here, right? Because it's not like you can flip a switch and go back to the way it no. was pre-COVID. No. And so it sounds like that's what you guys are, are doing.
5: Yeah, very much. And we also opened the West Side. I have a restaurant mm-hmm. at 64 and Broadway, Bar Boulou and Episori Boulou opened yesterday. Or this morning, actually, this morning, we opened Episori Boulu. So it's a retail store where it's open all day from breakfast to early evening. And people can have salads and sandwiches and things who are uh, all home-baked and homemade. And then we, uh, Bar Boulu has a huge terrace on 64 and Broadway. So that's very, very convenient as well. And uh, we took Café Boulou up in the Berkshire and we did a pop-up there mm. in a wonderful Rolais Chateau called the Blantyre. So it, it really, uh, we find... I mean, it's all this opportunity to try to bring back staff. I mean, we were more than 750 staff, and we went down to seven people, <sighs> and now we are back up to 120 total around uh, the, the different businesses we have reopened, and we are pushing up and bringing more people. So,
0: Wow, that's, and, that's big moves, yeah.
1: And in terms of capacity, Danielle, um, what is the – I mean, what can you do at, at, at what you're opening tonight versus what you would be able to do inside? <laughs> I, think, I think the terrace is only, I would say, for right now.
5: It's, and, and because, you know, if, it, if it's beautiful weather, we might be able to extend more tables. Right. But if it's uh, a little bit drizzly, like tonight, we want to stay under the canopy, and we have a limitation of about 35 to 40 mm-hmm. seats. But that's pretty good. And then if it's Mm. it's nice weather, we might be able to double that size. But that's nothing compared to the size on the inside, where normally we have private dining rooms, we have the bar and lounge, we have the dining room, which could almost bring uh, 180 uh, seats or more. Uh, So it's a very different business model, and it's definitely not um, a profitable model, but it's very... It it, it, it motivates us so much to do something.
1: Well, with the whole concept of outdoor dining, I'm sure you knew about it before, but you've probably learned more than you ever thought you would about outdoor dining, given that that's how we're all uh, eating out uh, these days. Mm-hmm. How do you view it? What have you learned about it in terms of what you can and can't do and, and maybe what the future is, given that we're going to be in this for some time? Of
5: I know, and, and and thanks God, I mean, we're in it in the summer right now, right. and the fall should be mellow until at least November. Uh, but the um, the mayor of New York has really opened up, and I think many cities all over the country have opened up the opportunity for restaurateurs to be able to put tables outside in places who have never been authorized before, and they are really helpful um meaningful, uh, I mean, mindful of, uh, of course, the security for the guests, but also um, really up, uh, give the a chance for the restaurateur to have a meaningful business outdoor for the time being, for the time being, let's say. And uh, of course, the fine dining restaurant is more complicated, but not too many restaurants as outdoor terrace or cafe. Uh, the small bistro. We have like four or five tables outside. I've seen them taking half a block and going around the block with tables. So it, it seemed like they have more tables outside than inside now. Right. But <laughs> but it's good. Thank yeah. God.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And that there is that opportunity to do it. You know, um, we were talking with our Kate Crater, who covers. Um, I think, as you of know, uh, we love we love talking with Kate. And and oh, you know, we were wondering. You know. You were going, I thought, to talk to Lincoln Center about doing maybe big screens for events like the U.S. Open so that maybe diners could watch from Lou. Are are you doing that? Are you moving ahead with that?
5: Well, uh, I am still convinced that we can do something, and I am looking at sponsor. It's it's all about trying to find sponsoring to be able to create something for the moment, a little bit of a spontaneous thing, and for a short leave, but at least we can do things to entertain guests. But I think um, it is important that uh, because the open is happening, uh, that we are able to show it all over town, and it's uh, it, it will be uh, fantastic. I mean, I uh, would love to be able to show it at Danielle if needed, but at Lincoln Center there is the huge esplanade where right. I'm sure people don't have to crowd and they have the entire wall of the buildings where they could project the games and mm. put some speakers. So I hope they will be, you know, interested to do that, of course. And.
0: No, no, no. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> and,
5: and I have the, and and you know, now with the to-go business or so the eatery, yeah. people can grab their little snack or sandwich or meal or lunch or dinner and sit down and, and watch the games during the day. And I'm sure that the city can plan uh, enough social spacing. So there is really safety first, uh, of course, very important.
1: So, Danielle, you know, the last time we talked to you, um, you know, the the pandemic was very much on in in New York City, unfortunately. It was a very different time. Um, But obviously not much, not too much has changed, although, you know, little baby steps forward that we're taking in terms of Mm -hmm. outdoor dining. I do wonder for you, because at the time you were rightly concerned, I'm sure you remain concerned about the future of your business and maybe more importantly, the future of fine dining uh, all yeah. across the country. Where do we stand now? What do you think about now when it comes to the future of fine dining?
5: Well, uh, for a while it will have to be slightly recaliber i mean slightly or strongly recaliber uh, in in this um, ambition of offering. I would say in his size, uh, you know, uh, we find dining. When we think of fine dining, that means we're going to reopen our restaurant inside. And um, in its price, maybe, maybe more option to be able to have choice of not having to go for a tasting menu only, mm. but maybe some sampler option. Uh, maybe some uh, hours of operation will maybe shrunk down a little bit. Uh, because of uh, the cost of doing business, and so you know less less days of operation will mean more control in in the cost of doing business and uh and and slowly get back to where it belongs because I think fine dining will not go away, but i 'm hoping that restaurant danielle I can do a pop up for the the months to come mm. where I create something very casual, very disrupting, and very different. And I'm I'm basically covering the skin of fine dining and putting a a skin of (laughs) a casual place. Right. And and uh, but something a little bit of a it's uh, like a movie set where you are somewhere else for a minute for a time. And 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 uh, I do that with sponsor. Yeah. And we have some wonderful sponsor who want to support my idea and and help the the restart of fine dining and I think everybody's going to have to figure it out how to restart not to become who they were but to restart something yeah. and So that's an opportunity to do
0: that. So I'm thinking of people who are listening and saying, I want in. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it going to be all reservations or reservations and walk-ins? So
5: right now for the Sidewalk Cafe at Danielle, it's going to be a reservation someday, starting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 6 o'clock and uh or, but it's at three o'clock we open the reservation so we know exactly the weather we know mm-hmm. how, how many tables to put and all that because there's nothing worse than coming to a restaurant and there is no table right but we'll always keep tables open with no reservation as well so portion of it will be reservation portion no
1: reservation
5: so there's always an opportunity that a table could get available
1: all right. Well, we wish you only yes. the best of luck and uh, look luck. forward to seeing you soon. Daniel Ballou, uh certainly a, a just one of the best names mm-hmm. uh, in the business. And uh, so many people look to him for his leadership and, and have and will continue to. So congratulations on taking that step forward. Chef and restaurateur, of course, on the phone from Restaurant Danielle, there in New York City.